Arts of Creation and Conflict, where our goal is to turn confrontation into conversation. This is your host, Daniel Eaton. This episode is season four of the series, which focuses on impacts and influences in our interpretation of Genesis. And this is the second episode in that series. Today, we're going to be discussing how one's belief on creation can impact other beliefs that we have, particularly as it refers to uh, doctrinal beliefs or beliefs from the Bible. Before I wanted, before I get into that, though, I want to mention something. I recently read that the Bible used as an adjective in front of a word is usually a good indication that what's being presented is a skewed version of cherry-picked verses that, in my mind, includes things like biblical creationism, as it's now called. But it also, in a somewhat humorous way, applies to this podcast. James 1.19 says, Know this, my beloved brothers, let everyone be quick to hear, slow, and slow to anger. And yes, that's a bit in jest, but it kind of illustrates the point of that quote. Um, you can't put biblical podcasts as an adjective and use a proof text like this to justify that. Uh, but I do drive my family a little bit crazy in that I do speak slowly and I do pause a lot in my speaking as I get my thoughts together. You don't hear a lot of that because in the last episode, for example, it was 71 minutes long and there were 175 edits that I made to that podcast. So when you think about that, about twice a minute, I'm having to edit out a uh or an um or something like that. And that doesn't even include all of the automatically truncated silence sections of the podcast. But this particular rambling gait of mine as I speak is actually due to a couple of things. And I wanted to mention that because it has some relevance to this podcast. First, I'm from the South. I'm in the Bible Belt. I'm outside of the Atlanta area where we buckle the Bible Belt, or at least we used to. And here in the South, we do tend to speak a little slower. Things run a little bit slower than uh, in some of the northern New England states, for example. I remember going to a church service in the Boston area one time, and they spoke so fast that I couldn't understand what was going on. Well, that, they had a little bit of a Boston accent as well. Here in the South, we don't have an accent. It's everybody else that has an accent. But it's not just being from the South that causes us to be a little bit more easygoing in our conversation. But I'm also disabled due to some neurological issues. And I run about a 25% deficit in red blood cells. And of course, those are the cells that carry oxygen to the brain. On top of that, I've got low oxygen percentage a lot of the times. So between those two things, Concentration is a little bit more of a challenge to me than it used to be, and I use little there as a relative term. I used to do a lot of speaking and used to be pretty good at it, and now not so much. So thanks to a lot of editing, I can clean that up a lot, but I do tend to run a little bit slow. So I'm going to be doing something a little bit different with this episode 
to see if the end result produces a better podcast. And I'd really like your feedback on this. You may have noticed this already, but I'm going to increase the speed of the final edit of this podcast by about 5%. And if you've got a podcast app, uh, like I use Podcast Addict on Android, you can actually speed it up a little bit further or you can slow it back down a little bit if you if you want it to last a little bit longer. But in listening to the last episode, I actually sped it up during some of my editing and I thought it sounded really good sped up by about 10%. But I'm going to speed this up by about 5%. It's just kind of a personal preference. It's kind of a test for this episode. But send me an email at creationandconflict@gmail.com and let me know whether or not you like it sped up a little bit like this or whether or not you prefer the original slower version. One last announcement before we get into the topic, and that is we now have a YouTube channel. For those who do not normally subscribe to podcasts, but would subscribe to a YouTube channel. I'll give a link to that down in the show notes, but it's going to be a good alternative way to spread the podcast around, and it is using the features available from the software from our sponsor, Headliner, and there'll be a link to that in the show notes as well. Today, we'll start out with a legitimate quote, like I'm going to try to do for most of these podcasts. And today's quote is from 2 Peter 3.8. It says, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. I'm sure you're familiar with that verse. If you're a proponent of progressive creation as presented by Hugh Ross and his organization Reasons to Believe, you're pretty familiar with that verse. And if you kind of precede Hugh Ross and that interpretation, and we're a follower of the fairly old interpretation, the day-age theory, you're familiar with that verse as well. But I don't quote that verse as some kind of proof text that the days in Genesis are longer than normal days. Even though I personally believe that the earth is old, I accept that the days in Genesis are normal days. God called the lit hours a day, and there were some listed. I see nothing in the context of Genesis 1 to suggest that the definition of that word or the understanding of that word is supposed to change from day one to the other days that are listed there. If day one is a normal day or the daylight hours, which... I believe it is referring to, then I see no reason to believe that the other days referenced there are not daylight hours as well. I quote that verse because of the context of the rest of the third chapter of 2 Peter. 2 Peter 3 starts out in the context of reminding the reader of the predictions of future events by the apostles and the prophets. And it references a verse that many creationists really abuse as a proof text that relates to the last days and that scoffers will come in the last days saying, where is his coming? And all these things that have happened in the past 
Things are just going as normal, whatever. That's not a proof text against uniformitarianism or anything like that. It's referring to prophecy and referring to the last days. And it's even an assumption that we are in the last days that are being referenced in that passage. But I bring that verse or that whole passage up there because the way you understand Genesis chapter 1 can impact your eschatology and the other way around. They under, The early church fathers understood Genesis chapter 1 as not just a pattern for the work week or a pattern of working your fields for six years and letting them rest on the seventh year. To them, Genesis 1 was a pattern for the history of the whole world. They believed that just as the six days of creative events was followed by a seventh day of rest or God coming to reside with man or even rain from here on earth, that the world was going to last for 6,000 years, followed by the thousand-year millennial reign of Christ. And so while many of them were young earth creationists in the sense that they believed the earth was young and they believed that God created everything, their arguments and rationale and reasoning for that was totally different than modern young earth creationism. Because the world had not ended yet, because Christ had not set up a millennial reign yet, in their mind, the world therefore was less than 6,000 years old. And it's kind of a, an interpretation of Genesis based on their eschatology, as opposed to an interpretation of Genesis based on adamant definitions, dogmatic definitions of how long the days were and that the days were consecutive and all the other assumptions that, uh, and some of these assumptions are correct, so I'm not using that as a pejorative, but all of the assumptions that are necessary to date the universe based on a relative genealogy-based date for Adam. So, their quote-unquote young earth creationism was an entirely different belief based on entirely different arguments than what we see today. The view that the world was going to last 6,000 years dovetails with one of the four main interpretations of Revelation. Today, it's easy to come to an incorrect understanding that the church has always taught a dispensational, fundamentalist, futuristic, pre-tribulation rapture interpretation of end times. Basically, it's the view of the Left Behind books by Tim LaHaye and Jerry Jenkins. Uh, but that view is actually relatively new. Uh, that has not been the predominant view of eschatology in church history. There have actually been four main views of Revelation, the futurist view being one, the other three views being a symbolic view, a preterist or partial preterist view, I lean partial preterist myself, 
and a historicist view. And is it is this historicist or historical view of prophecy that believed that the end times prophecies applied to a timeline of world history. And just as the days in Genesis was kind of seen as a pattern for world history, the the different seals and bowls and all of this different uh, apocryphal imagery in the book of Revelation uh, was seen to apply to what modern day might refer to as the church age of the entire history of the world. And that particular view had some very striking predictions and associations, historical associations, but predictions where they where they said, okay, the next thing that's coming is going to be some great pestilence or some, you know, whatever. And it's going to happen around this particular time. And those things actually came to pass. So that particular view was actually a very popular view of end times. And it wasn't until they got into references of the Antichrist that that view kind of fell out of favor. Because when it came time to for the Antichrist to come on scene in that particular eschatological view, the leading figure of the time that the, that the references or descriptions of the Antichrist would apply to was the Pope of the Catholic Church. Now, if you're the Pope or if you're Catholic, the idea that you're now being labeled as the Antichrist was not a real popular idea. <laughs> so obviously they took a little bit of offense at that. And so it was actually a Catholic monk, I believe, but it was a it was a, a Catholic leader that went back to Revelation and basically came up with this popularized futurist interpretation of Revelation that says, oh no, you know, Pope's not the Antichrist. None of this has happened yet. It's all going to be happening in the future. If you're interested in, in uh, these different views of Revelation and the history of them and that kind of stuff, there is a really, really good resource, the best resource I've ever found on this particular topic. And that is a book by Steve Gregg called Revelation, Four Views, a Parallel Commentary. I'll put a link to that in the show notes and on our resource page on the website. But it takes each of the passages going through the book of Revelation and kind of like when you open your Bible and you have, you know, two columns on each page kind of a thing, they'll... This book does the same thing with four columns on each page that you, that you have opened up in the book. There's two columns on each page, and each of these columns will tell you how each of these four views of Revelation interpret that particular passage. So you could go from start to finish and just read the futurist interpretation if you wanted to, or the historicist interpretation. Or you could read it passage by passage and read in conjunction what the other views say. And so it's, it's really, really cool if you're interested in, 
in times of studies. Uh, it also gets into pre-trib, mid-trib, and post-trib rapture as as kind of parallel ideas. And it also gets into premillennialism and amillennialism and all of those different views as well. But it is an incredible resource, and uh, it's been years since I've read it, but you can find that at the link that I'm putting in the show notes. Or if you're a podcast listener and you prefer to listen to things, Steve Gregg also has a, I think it's about a 14 or 16 part lecture series that he did on this same topic called When Shall These Things Be? And that is found at his Narrow Path website where he has all of his resources. And I'll put a link to those topical lectures in the show notes as well. But you need to scroll down to When Shall These Things Be? And all of the episodes are there and you can download them and listen to them. Really, really good resource if you're interested in this. But the point is, is that the early church fathers were interpreting Genesis based on their eschatology, and they were also using Genesis as a pattern of world history that impacted their eschatology. A little circular there, but it's it's really cool when you get into reading what all the early church fathers wrote on this. Some people will take their references to they being a thousand years and a thousand years being as a day as proof text that they believed that the days in Genesis when they were referring to what Genesis is actually talking about and not the overall pattern. But some people will claim, well, see here, this particular early church father thought that each of these days was a thousand years or a long period of time. A lot of that is taken out of context because a lot of that is referring to the pattern that they derive from Genesis 1 and not necessarily what how long they thought each of those days were in Genesis 1. So you need to make that distinction and make sure you're reading things in the right context when you go back and look at what the early church fathers were saying about this. But the early church fathers are not the only ones whose eschatology is impacted by what they see in Genesis 1. You can see that today in a kind of interesting correlation that I've made. Most of the young earth creationists that I've come across, including the half of my life that I was a young earth creationist, are also fundamentalists or at least were raised in fundamentalism. And they follow this quote unquote left behind eschatology. They see the Garden of Eden as a perfect paradise with no sickness or pain or suffering or death. It was a paradise of everything perfect as we currently think of perfection. So when God said it was good, we can just imagine everything as as blissful and pleasant as we can imagine. And that's that is the view that we have of Genesis. That takes what that takes what God said as it was good out of his perspective and his context and basically applies our view of what is good to that. But then they see this perfect paradise of Eden being suddenly struck with 
sickness and pain and suffering and death and everything that we can think of that is horrible or bad or unpleasant, it all happened at the fall. Prior to the fall, I doubt most young earth creationists would have thought that Adam worked up a sweat or, you know, got sore from a hard day's work or whatever. All of these unpleasant things we see as something happening after the fall. And pardon the French here, things have been heading to hell in a handbasket ever since in that particular worldview. So things start at the pinnacle of perfection and have been going downhill ever since. And in that particular worldview, it culminates in the abortion and debauchery and evil and everything that we see today with the Antichrist coming to power any hour now, immediately following a rapture, of course, and Christ then conquering the evil of the world, overturning all of that, and setting up his millennial reign, where things will go back to being a perfect paradise. So basically, in this view, anything that happened prior to the birth of Cain and Abel sets a framework in which they review everything that happened since. So everything prior to Cain and Abel, the the conditions of the garden and the result of the fall is central to the worldview and where the world is heading. And then they see Christ's return as justice and judgment coming. It's both a rescue of the saints and a final conquering of all of the evil and the heretics of the world. It's almost a divine revenge or retribution for the persecution that the faithful creationists have been suffering from. And in many ways, they see themselves in fighting for this. You see a, you actually see among some elements of Christianity an idea that they can hasten the return of Christ by trying to get certain things implemented, like rebuilding the temple in Jerusalem, for example. Or you'll see a fight that's being presented as a holy war. On the other hand, if you are an evolutionary creationist, also known as a theistic evolutionist, you probably belong to one of the more mainline Christian denominations or Catholicism or orthodoxy. And you see things actually progressing from, to use the pejorative term, pond scum. You see things progressing through the course of human and God continuing to work and God continuing to create. And while sin was introduced in the fall, God immediately stepped in and started working out a plan of redemption at that point, and that things are basically progressing according to his divine will. This is a more optimistic view of history, it seems, instead of things getting worse and worse and worse, and instead of prophecy groups focusing on all of the persecutions of Christians and all of the things that could be that that Revelation could be referring to as, you know, the end of the world is is coming kind of 
precursors, those in more mainline denominations tend to think that things are getting better than it was at the fall, that, and particularly after Christ, that sin has been defeated. And if you're an amillennialist, you believe that evil is being constrained. If you look at the evil that is talked about, the levels of evil that is talked about in the Old Testament and stuff, for example, and even during the life of Christ, where there's a lot of references to things like demon possession and that kind of stuff on a lot more frequent basis than you would think of seeing that today if things were even worse now than it was then. People are people from those more mainline denominations are a lot more open to this more optimistic view and more open to things like amillennialism. And that is influenced by what all they think happened prior to Cain and Abel. Are things progressing or are things degrading? And that entire worldview of which direction you think things are headed plays a big impact or is impacted greatly by what one thinks of pre-Cain and Abel time. Now, personally, I really like that optimistic view. I'm not going to accept it because I like it or because I prefer it. Personally, I think that while eschatology is about a future eternity that fights over when and how that's going to take place shouldn't be used to create a stumbling block to unbelievers because creating a stumbling block to them coming to Christ has eternal consequences. Uh, whether or not there's a rapture, whether or not there's the rapture and the second coming are the same event, uh, whether or not we spend eternity in heaven or we spend eternity here on earth, all of those things are interesting to discuss. They're interesting to contemplate, but I am more concerned with an unbeliever coming to a saving grace, a saving faith in Christ and spending eternity with Christ, wherever that happens to be, that I am convincing them of one particular view of eschatology. So for me, I'm what I call a pan-millennialist. I believe everything will pan out in the end. I'm kind of ambivalent about the specifics of that. I've got some ideas, but I don't hold to them dogmatically, and I don't preach those as a primary doctrine of the church. When it comes to the mechanics of creation of material things, and by that I mean the method in which the earth produced living things, for example, when God said, let the earth produce living things, we know that he decreed that that happened. We know that it did happen, but we're not given a lot of specifics on just how did that happen. We know the, the who and we're told the why. It doesn't spend a lot of time talking about the how or the when there, just that this happened. So I think that when we get to eternity, we will see how much emphasis the creator himself places on exactly how the earth 
was let to produce living things, or just how central that is to the gospel message according to the Creator, according to Christ. And I think we're going to see just how much our Redeemer wants us to focus on in the beginning versus what must I do to be saved. I think that's the core question that the church should focus on and that we as Christians are called to focus on. We're called to go into all the world and make disciples, and we're called to spread our faith. And while I can believe some things by faith, I don't think that the age of dirt is what that passage is talking about. So I think we should get our priorities in the right order there. When modern scientific creationism came to be in the 19th and that was the label at the time before it kind of got rebranded as biblical creationism. It was wildly popular. Prior to early 1960s, in the late 1950s, the most popular book on the topic of science and faith was basically an old earth book. And I'll get into this in the history of, of young earth creationism and old earth creationism. But when... We started having moon landings and this kind of stuff in the in the early 60s. Science was becoming more and more popular, and the creation view that became popularized largely because of that was the scientific creationism view found in the Genesis Flood, written by Henry Morris and John Whitcomb. And I'll put links to that in all the usual places. But what you see is that over the course of the last half century, as the popularity of that particular view has decreased, and as the popularity of old earth creationism and evolutionary creationism has become more and more popular and more and more accepted in churches, what you have seen is they're becoming more dogmatic to the point of almost becoming shrill in how central the belief or or a particular belief about creation is to the entire gospel message. Basically, they have elevated their view of creation to be a central tenet of the doctrines of inerrancy or soteriology. Soteriology is the doctrine of salvation and how one becomes saved, what one must believe or do to become saved. Uh, that's an entirely different discussion of, you know, which comes first, regeneration or faith and and all that. You know, there's entire seminary courses devoted to that. But you can see this elevation of a view of creation ele being elevated to a core piece of the doctrine of salvation in a couple of different ways. First, you see it in the way that biblical creationism is frequently defended. If you've never done this, it is actually frustrating, but a good learning experience to just go onto Facebook and do a search for groups entitled Creation versus Evolution or Young Earth versus Old Earth or creationism, or anything like that. And you will find a lot of creationist groups there. And just subscribe and go and look at the arguments that are used against 
those who disagree with young earth creationism. And I'm not talking about the scientific arguments. I'm not talking about arguments that have to do with how long the day was or when Adam was born or whatever. I'm talking about logical arguments and theological arguments. What I mean by that is when you disagree with young earth, young earth creation in a lot of these groups and you inform them that their particular view is a very small minority view in today's church, only about 10% of Christians believe the current young earth creationism model, they often respond with the narrow is the way passage from Mark 7, 13 through 14 that says, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those that enter it are many, but the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. And they'll use that particular passage as a proof text that, well, they must be on the right track because they're in the minority, or they're being persecuted because they're right. But just because you have a minority view doesn't mean that it's the right view. I could claim that beach sand tastes like cotton candy. That would definitely be a minority view. But that doesn't mean that I can use the verse that narrow is the way that leads to life, that my particular minority view is therefore a correct one or theologically accurate one. I know that's a silly example, but that's the kind of logic that's being applied here. We can't apply a passage that talks about salvation like that as if it is talking about creation, as if those two are one and the same. But yet that's what proof texts like that do. It conflates the idea of one particular view of creation with a defense of salvation or an evidence of salvation. Um, and I mentioned this a little bit in the last episode, but many people will see a belief in younger creationism as an evidence of salvation. Now, many young earth leaders like Ken Ham of Answers in Genesis, I'll put that link in all the favorite places too, Many will actually state on their website or may even make verbal statements that it's possible to be a Christian and believe in an old earth or believe in evolutionary creationism. They'll usually say that in the context of, well, it's possible to be saved and be backslidden or be saved and be not right with God, or, you know, that's that's almost the context in which they say these kind of things. But kind of out of the other side of their mouth, they will infer the direct opposite. I've personally seen a spokesperson from Answers in Genesis at a, at a live presentation or speech that they did refer to the faith of a Christian theistic evolutionist with air quotes, as if they weren't really a Christian or didn't really have a saving faith. In fact, the statement was made that they probably didn't even believe the virgin birth because they disagreed with answers in Genesis on how 
creation took place. So you'll see dogmatic, you'll see statements that say, yeah, it's possible to be a Christian and believe in these other views. But the inference and the suggestion that they make and what is actually being picked up by many is that true Christians believe in other creationists. In fact, you'll actually see that claimed in a lot of these Facebook groups where people will claim that if you don't believe in younger creationism, you don't believe in the Bible and you have to believe in the Bible in order to be saved. Therefore, you can't really be saved. I've actually had people use that argument against me a number of times. Another thing that you will frequently see in these groups, and this is, again, how one's view of creation impacts these other beliefs is uh, you will see something that is uh, that is right out of one of the best TED Talks I have ever seen. And it's Catherine Schultz's TED Talk on being wrong. It's one of the most eye-opening 15 minutes that I've ever had. I'll link to that in all of the usual places. But in this talk, she talks about what it is like to be wrong versus what it's like to realize that you're wrong and how we react to those that we disagree with. And that's what you see a lot in, in the creation debate groups. Our first reaction when we talk to somebody and we find out that they don't agree with us is to think that, oh, well, they don't know all of our facts. If I just explain it to them, they'll agree with me. And what we do is we tell them all the reasons why we believe what we do, and they still disagree with us. It may very well be that they used to believe what we do, and they know all those reasons. But we think that, oh, if I only educate them, they'll come around to my way of thinking. When that doesn't work, and we've been unable to fix their ignorance to a degree in which they will join our side and you know fight alongside us and you find out that they're not really ignorant that they can hold a train of thought and put coherent sentences together our second reaction to them is to believe that they're just unable to grasp the concept they're not ignorant they're idiots but when they show that they can actually hold a train of thought and put together coherent sentences we realize, okay, well, educating them didn't work, and they're smart enough to grasp what I say, so the only alternative is they must have some ulterior motive for pushing their particular erroneous position. They must be evil. We never considered that perhaps they might know more than we do, and that we're the ones that might need some education, and that we're the ones that are not accepting of the truth. We just always assume that our position is the true one and that this intelligent, educated person that we're talking to, if they disagree with us, they must be opposing us for some reason. And if we're a Christian and we're standing for God and we're standing for creation, they must be opposing Christianity and opposing God and opposing creation. Therefore, they must be an atheist. 
or at least in cahoots with Yogi. Um, you'll also see them called sheep's and wolf's clothing. Can't tell you the number of times people have claimed that about me or claimed that I'm an atheist. I've lost track of the number of times that people over the last 30 years have claimed that about me. And once those labels are applied, it's kind of like playing the race card that I mentioned in the last episode. Once those labels are applied, it's an excuse, not a reason, but an excuse to disregard anything that that particular person says. You don't listen to and you don't then you're not open to any arguments from somebody that is a racist. And you're not, if you're a Christian, you're not open to any of the arguments that are presented by somebody that is against you and against your God. Once these labels are applied in a lot of these circles, or maybe it's better described as echo chambers, these groups where creationism is debated. If you disagree with the position of the group and you get these labels applied to you, it's inevitable that you'll have your salvation question. Just because you disagree with them on the general date of when Adam came, or just because you may disagree with them on the specifics of how Adam came to be, it doesn't matter that you recognize that sin exists. It doesn't matter that you recognize that you're a sinner and that you're in need of a saving uh, relationship with Christ and that Christ is your only salvation and the only way to get to heaven and that you have to believe in faith that salvation is through God's grace and that it's a gift and you can't earn it and all of these other things that are related to salvation. In these particular circumstances, in in these particular echo chambers, it doesn't matter what you believe about salvation. If you don't believe a specific thing about how old the earth is, oh, well, you must, you must not be saved. You must, you must be an atheist. Now, when that happens, I often ask the uh, person accusing me of this. If someone can be saved, if the only thing that they know about theology and God is in the book of John, I don't even limit it to John 3.16. Take the whole book of John. Can someone come to a saving relationship with Christ if all they have is the book of John. And what you'll find is all kinds of distractions and diversions and rabbit trails and anything possible to not answer that question. Because if they answer that question as no, then they've got problems in the book of John itself. If they answer it as yes, then they're admitting that specifics about what's in Genesis chapter 1 are not required for salvation. Now, it doesn't change anybody's mind when I bring up that argument, and that's because most people in these particular groups aren't there to learn anything. People are in most of these groups, particularly if it has a versus in the title, like creation versus evolution, or young earth versus old earth, or creationism versus anything, they're not there to learn. They're there to take a stand and to fight. And they see fighting over these things like the date of dirt as doing God's work, as carrying on the fight until the divine general from heaven comes in on horseback to defeat the heretics. It's a divine calling to a lot of these people. The work 
that I have ahead of me here in this podcast is to show that a lot of these tactics, this whole context of confrontation and the attitudes that are presented in a lot of these places by people who are claiming to be like Christ are not godly at all. It's actually something reminiscent of what you would see in C.S. Lewis's Screwtape Letters. I'll put a link to that in the show notes as well. If you've never read that, it is excellent. It's kind of an allegory. It's uh, communications between two different demons on how to get Christians led astray. And nothing will lead a Christian astray better than just to get them slightly off mark and to get them to focus on something that is theological, but to focus on defending the minor, secondary, tertiary doctrines of Christianity, the minor interpretations, in such a way that it keeps us distracted from what we are called to do as followers of Christ, what the church is called to do in reaching the world for Christ and sharing the gospel. It results in us adding to the gospel in ways that are really dangerous. And it does so in a way that has us convinced that we are doing God's work. So we're not convicted about doing God's work because we think we are doing God's work. But it's these kinds of deceptive tactics uh, and deceptive distractions that C.S. Lewis gets into in the Screwtape Letters. If you haven't read that, it's, it's a short read. It's not an expensive book, but I highly recommend that you read it and consider where some of the things mentioned in this book might convict you a little bit about some things that you haven't thought of before, but uh, you might realize that, hey, I'm guilty of this, but it's it's a really good book. I recommend it. But it's not just the doctrine of soteriology that is impacted in how one views creation date. As I mentioned in the last episode, the doctrine of creation is frequently linked to the doctrine of inerrancy. And if one believes strongly enough that Genesis can only be understood a particular way, you will see them defend it by claiming that you don't believe the Bible or you don't believe that the Bible is true. Uh, to these people, there are two items that can't really be separated in their mind, and that is the idea that the text says one thing, and I interpret that text to mean one thing. There are a striking number of Christians who cannot make that distinction. They cannot distinguish between what the text says and how they interpret a translation of the text and what they think that translation means. By the time they've come to a conclusion of what those marks on paper are intended to convey, they're at least two generations away from the original text, but they don't think of it that way. To them, the definitions that they assign, the understandings that they assign to the words that are on the page are the intended message from God, the intended meaning from God. And that's why all the proof texts in the world have no real impact when they're trotted out in all of these creationist groups. 
It doesn't matter how many times somebody points out that the word day is associated with evening and morning in Genesis 1. It doesn't matter how many times people trot out Exodus 20, where it says in six days God made the earth and the seas and the heavens and everything that was in them. I may not have that in the right order, but you get the point. The point is that the young earth creationists will interpret that one way. The old earth interpret creationists will interpret that another way. Both will agree that it's in the Bible. Both will agree that it's true. Both will agree that it's God's word. So for me to present that verse and say, this is God's word, this is true, this is in the Bible. If you don't believe it the way I do, you don't believe the Bible. That's just as convincing to a younger creationist as it is when a younger creationist presents that verse to me. Because we both believe on those core central things, we just disagree on the interpretation. But trying to get the younger creationist to understand that the disagreement is over an interpretation and not over, quote-unquote, God's word, is one of the hardest shifts in mindset that I've ever encountered. And it's one of the things that is central to why this particular podcast is so important, is that if we're going to move from confrontation to conversation, from debate to dialogue, we're going to have to approach the topic of creation objectively and on a common framework with a common understanding. And the common understanding is that Christian orthodoxy allows for all of these different interpretations of creation. That means that Christians believe all of these particular interpretations. I'm not going to phrase it the way that a lot of young earth creationist leaders do, that, oh, well, it's possible to be a Christian and believe these other things. It's possible to be a Christian and believe all kinds of things. The point is that Christians believe all of these. It's possible to be a Christian and believe in young earth creationism, but you won't see the young earth creationists phrasing it that way. But that's just as possible to be a Christian as any of these other views. So that's just a couple of examples of how one's view of Genesis chapter 1 is tied to the other doctrines and particularly as it relates to salvation and accusations that somebody's not saved or an atheist or collaborating with the atheist or taking the side of the atheist or whatever. And that's because it's all connected. Our worldview as a Christian includes where we came from, how we got here, what our purpose is, what our purpose as a Christian is, which involves what's involved with salvation, and where we're going. These particular questions of where we came from, why, we, why we're here, and where we're going have always been central philosophical questions for mankind. They have been discussed and debated ever since two old men with nothing better to do got together and decided to figure out the meaning of life which is 42, by the way. And while there's only one Christian worldview in a general sense, within Christian orthodoxy, we must recognize that there are different answers to some of these specifics and some of these questions, particularly as it relates to questions about creation, and that these debates go all the way back 
to the earliest church fathers' writings on these topics. And once we recognize the objectivity of the debate and we recognize these different positions objectively, we can diminish the dogmatism on these things and learn to discuss rather than debate. Until next time, when we're going to talk about accommodation, the messy topic I mentioned last time, and the worldview of the ancient Hebrews, this is your host, Daniel Eaton, thanking you again for spending a little bit of your time listening to this podcast instead of the 300,000, literally 300,000 other active podcasts that you could be listening to. And I don't say that to suggest that those are a perfect distraction right now. Why don't you go look and see what else is in your podcast queue? But I seriously appreciate you listening to this podcast. If you have friends that you believe may be interested in the topic, feel free to recommend Creation and Conflict to them, both as a podcast and on our new YouTube channel. And remind them that our goal is to turn confrontation into conversation. If you'd like to visit the Creation and Conflict website, you can do so at bit.ly slash conflictpod. There you'll find all the sources for the podcast. You'll find the, the book with, or the page dedicated to all the books and other reference materials and stuff that I've mentioned in this podcast and the other podcasts. You'll find memes that I've created and, and three, four other pages there. But just go spend a little bit of time there. And special thanks to Headliner as uh, for sponsoring today's podcast. They've got some amazing creation tools. I actually had a free one-on-one training session with them yesterday. They offer that at any time for any of their users to learn how to use their products because there are some really complex and comprehensive things that you can do with their products. And so a little 20, 30-minute training session will actually show you some really cool features. But you can help the podcast by creating a free account there at bit.ly slash conflictyt. That would be a great help to the podcast. As always, check out the show notes and the podcast website to find all the things mentioned in today's podcast. Thanks again for listening, and I will talk to you next time.